Hello, Dogloads. It is I, your host, Bob Shan, and this is the show Documenteers, the show where we discuss documentaries because we love documentaries. Herzog Month continues with this episode. Folks, it's about volcanoes. That's right. We're talking about Werner Herzog's Into the Inferno. It's a fairly recent one. I think this came out a couple years ago. You can actually stream this on Netflix. And Werner makes a connection between volcanoes and the people who live around them. And it is uh, pretty educational, but also we may have stumbled across lava porn. Yeah, while we would discuss this in great detail, it doesn't do justice to watching it. It really is a beautiful film that you got to see. Even knowing everything about it before you ever watch it, it's still a completely different experience just to actually watch it. So I would recommend you do so. And it's Herzog Month. He is our deity, our demigod, our the father of our rating system. And we always promote that dude. I want to keep the, uh, the iTunes requests at the end. And uh, I think that will be how we do it more often. But yes, five stars and a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Find us at Documenteers Social Networks. Email is documenteerspodcast at gmail. And I'd like to also get into the habit if uh, of uh, telling you what m- the movie is going to be next week. And next week, Drew will be joining us and we will be discussing Werner Herzog's 1975 film that he made, I believe for it was for a German television station called The Divine Ecstasy of the Woodcarver Steiner. It's about a man who is a long jump skier and a woodcarver. He goes art in two different ways and you can find that on YouTube and you should be able to find versions where you could turn on English closed captioning because it is all in German. And it actually took me an embarrassing long time to realize that you could turn on English closed captioning. But yes, The Divine Ecstasy of the Woodcarver Steiner. So watch that, and because that is what Drew and I will be discussing next week. But this episode, Ginger and I are discussing volcanoes. Ginger loves volcanoes. So let's get right into this. Werner Herzog's Into the Inferno. Keep on docking. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Herzog month. Last week, Angela and I discussed the uplifting film Into the Abyss. Ooh, yeah. I saw that one. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can. You know, it was, uh, as we covered in the episode, it was definitely depressing, but also very interesting. And there are some surprisingly uplifting moments, but uh, it really captures like the web of how a murder within a community can affect that community and just hits everyone in some horrible way. This movie, Into the Inferno, almost said Into the Volcano. I keep (laughs) almost saying Into the Volcano. Werner visits many locations of volcanoes. And not only is he looking directly at the volcanoes, and we see the science of the volcanoes and see volcanoes in action. Beautiful film. Mm -hmm. So beautifully shot. I never got tired of watching... Flowing molten lava. What is it about lava? Maybe I'm alone in this, but I want to eat it. I want to like stick my hands in it and like touch it and just like eat it. Am I crazy? I might be crazy. Eat it. Yeah. I, I, I actually Google to see if there's like a um, lava eater or, or like some sort of like weird um, fetish or something around like lava <laughs> eating because I just can't watch lava or like that weird like taffy sort of like um, hardened magma. Yeah. Um, I just want to roll around in it. A lava fetish. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> We're learning a lot about you. Yeah, I know. I know. I w- there's got to be like some erotic fiction out there involving lava. I don't I w- know. I, folks, I don't know. 
personally about erotic fiction around lava, but maybe I will look into it. Volcanoes. Yep. The the teats of the earth protruding <laughs> into the sky. Mm, okay. Awaiting for the the cosmic infant to come and take its molten milk. Mm-hmm. It's a milk that to us would just melt us instantaneously. But to the cosmic deity that will one day come to this planet, it's nourishment. It'll suck the earth dry of this <laughs> nourishment. And then probably move on to Jupiter. I don't like the artsy-fartsy thing. I, I think I hated his poem. That's the religion I built after watching this film. And this movie, The Volcanoes, Werner connects the volcanoes, the communities that live around these volcanoes. And with these communities also comes spiritual notions. They tie religious means into it. Yeah, I mean, they, they build entire belief systems around these volcanoes, which I thought was really interesting. You know, like we not living near volcanoes um, have a, obviously a very much a very different perspective on things where these people, it's a part of their daily life as part of their cultural history. So it makes sense that something so enormous and unpredictable and just larger than we can even fathom. Of course, that kind of becomes like deeply ingrained into their cultural psyche and and in their belief systems. Yeah, we head to the... We are here in the Vanuatu archipelago a cluster of volcanic islands in the Pacific, about 1,000 miles east of northern Australia. In a town called Andu. And this town has been clobbered by a, a tropical storm. So this town is reeling. So not only is it having to contend with tropical storms, but a very volatile volcano. And we meet a dude. He, he's, he's got the name of like a scientist in a comic book. But he's real. His name is Clyde Oppenheimer. This is Clive Oppenheimer, a volcanologist from Cambridge University. Clyde Oppenheimer. We were talking about fetishes. He has a volcano fetish. He didn't say that. Those weren't his words. But we don't shame that. No. And we respect. We celebrate it. Yes. And they talk to a chief, Mal Moses. I love him. Clyde asks Mal. Chief Mal Moses, you're the head of this beautiful village of Endu. Just a few kilometers from the volcano crater you visited the crater and looked yourself into the inferno into the raging fire how did you feel when you went there and mal describes a fire spinning through a spirit that rumbles into the molten lava as it spins and bursts forth he said that some tourists had came and there was a bad eruption some time ago that just caused a lot of damage and they banned tourists for three years he was explaining kind of why they did that. Um, they were doing all these rituals, like just the locals were doing these rituals to try to stop the eruption. And they banned the tourists because it's their belief that if a tourist were to go up to the volcano, the spirits of the volcano would not recognize them as being part of yeah. the community. So, and if if it was just the community members kind of participating in these rituals, that maybe the volcano spirit would calm down enough to to stop. So yeah, they totally... A foreigner not only to the tribe, but to the volcano spirits itself. Itself, yeah, yeah. Seems, seems a little nationalistic. They believe that they are, not all of them, but certain members of the community are related to the volcano. So I they I think they try to keep things um, really kind of on a personal relationship level with yeah. the volcano which it makes sense you know it's kind of their way of like coming to terms with this huge force the chief said that he that he can't talk to the volcano because he's not related that's right but he said he has a brother i don't know if that means literal brother or like tribal brother but a brother goes and talks to the volcano and he's claimed that the volcano will will bring the brothers cigars right he says that, <laughs> he says that the brother can bring out a cigar and the volcano will send fire up to the brother and light the cigar yeah. for him. That seems which plausible. Which is a beautiful, it's a beautiful <laughs> yeah. vision, a visual. They follow Mal to a ritual. <laughs> That's my favorite part, I think. And uh, to some boys dressed in, everyone's kind of, everyone we see is dressed in uh, just like shirts from another country, Australia. Uh, we see one, that chief. He's wearing like a Queensland, looks like a janitor's, like a uniform from Australia somewhere. Mm-hmm. And but these, but these young boys are in the forest, and they're they're doing this ritual, and they're dressed in like their old tribal garbs, and they're hissing. 
and they're actually having a really good time, like having a lot of fun with uh, Werner and Clyde and the cameras and all that stuff. Aggressive faces at the camera and then they kind of start laughing and then you see the chief and he's smiling and he talks about how the people used to be cannibals like if people were traveling through the area you know their ancestors would just eat you so he wants to sort of give a an example of that but you can tell that that they really enjoyed kind of putting on this performance for the camera and i have have a six-year-old nephew and i can completely imagine him like getting out there and hamming it up and pretending to like be some scary yeah. cannibal. It cannibalistic was, it was really, rituals. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to, to take away from their culture at all. But sure. It was a really enjoyable scene. It, it was charming. It was Weirdly so charming. charming. It really was, yeah. Mal is surprised that anyone is interested in this. Yeah, because it's just so part of their everyday life. It would be like, you made a comparison a few minutes ago. It would be, it would be like people coming here to study what would be what is something that is the equivalent is like kind of like a mundane sort of everyday uh, mockingbirds sort of, mockingbirds Come i mean a mockingbird's sl- not going to erupt and like destroy <laughs> the world but but yeah i mean it's something that's just like we we may may not even really think about other people paying attention to yet. yeah like shrubs that are in everyone's front yard but <laughs> yeah. they're like you know these don't grow anywhere else it's like oh really right, okay. okay all right good you want some crab apples here you go <laughs> Crab apples are probably everywhere. I have no idea. Werner met Clyde Oppenheimer. Isn't it Clive? Did I say Clyde? Is it Clive? I think it's Clive. Yeah, it is Clive. <laughs> I've been calling him Clyde. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, you know, you kind of like the the D was kind of soft, so it could pass for a V or D. Yeah, their accents, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I get lost in their voices. And Clive, he's from Cambridge University, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Clive met Werner when Werner was uh, filming Encounters at the End of the World, which, if I'm remembering correctly, Encounters at the End of the World has that scene where there's a lone penguin and Werner is like very much projecting onto this penguin. I think so, yeah. And these penguins are going off into the tundra and one is kind of lagging behind and he's by himself and he keeps turning around and looking at the camera crew and Werner is wondering aloud like what 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 is this penguin's motivations what is it's thinking Dr. Ainley explained that even if he caught him and brought him back to the colony he would immediately head right back for the mountains But why? I loved it. Anyway, that was my favorite part of that movie. I almost uh, suggested that one. But But they also uh, discuss and film volcanoes. Yeah. And that movie led to this one. It's pretty easy to say. I'm sure Werner's fascination uh, with it led to what we're talking about right now. He and Clive actually struck up a friendship while filming that film that seems to be like a real sincere legitimate relationship that they have together and it's really nice that they are still working together 10 years later we see extra footage left over from encounters at the end of the world but it's of them interacting they seem very happy yeah very respectful to one another it was it's, it, it looks like a very genuine friendship they look comfortable together like they're really connecting on a deeper level it was really nice to see i'll probably discuss it throughout every Werner herzog movie we discuss during herzog month when people when they're not like looking at one of his movies watching one of his movies and they're just thinking about Werner herzog they think about some something with dryness who maybe might narrate have some bleak narration for something and he is capable of some bleak narration no doubt I think of Werner as an incredibly warm human being who connects very much to a commonality within people. You can tell he respects all these tribes people that he speaks to. In uh, Into the Abyss, how he how he respected all these people in this community that a lot of people might dismiss as dumb or like backwards, but he he appreciates that connection. He does a wonderful job of sort of bringing bringing that out, like the spirit of these communities and the, and the people whoever it is that he's filming yeah he really figures out a way to kind of like get a different and unique perspective and i really enjoyed that and, and the part where he and clive are talking like he even says like oh clive has decided to turn the camera on me and that's it's not something i you know i can't really recall back to a lot of herzog films but I don't know how often he appears as being like interviewed by another person, like in his own film. Yeah. I don't know how often that happens, but it happens in this one. And it's really, 
a sweet, nice moment. Yeah, and it's footage to establish how much these two men have grown to care about each other. The volcano that they study in that film, it erupts and they have to bail. And as they're leaving that town, Werner has footage of a man who he refuses to leave. He refuses to leave and he's sleeping on a tree. And there's like a kitty cat just hanging out by him. Yeah. And it was very, something very peaceful about watching this man lay there with that cat. And Werner kind of, he saw that the man just had a very philosophical notion about him. And the man, he sees that they're there. At first he's sleeping, then he sees that they're there. And then you can tell he gets a little annoyed. And then he gets up and he's telling them basically to leave. He's singing it in the song, but he's basically like, hey, you might want to get the fuck out of here. How would you? How much would you have loved to have had subtitles? Because Werner says that he starts singing against the cameras. And mm-hmm. He's singing, and I just really want to know what he's, what he's saying. Je suis ceci, d'amour, en le voyant si belle. I guess we got the general gist that he was just like, <laughs> right. hey, leave, idiot. Werner states in, uh, in this old footage uh, that he says that I'm the only one in filmmaking that is sane. <laughs> and you know what? I believe it. There's also some footage Werner uh, meets Katya and Maurice Kraft. If you've looked at anything regarding volcanoes, any up-close shots, pictures, or film of flowing lava, it just might have been shot by Katya and Maurice. They walk right up to erupting volcanoes, and there's shots of them in the in the, the heat suits, like uh, like firefighters have these suits when they're jumping into wildfires. They're in the uh, tent. They have tents that are made out of, but it's the extreme heat suits. We have this silver kind of foil esque material. They look like like 50s sci fi astronauts. They do, yeah, yeah. The angle of the shot probably makes it seem closer than it really is because, of course, volcanoes are giant <laughs> and their lava eruptions are like stories high. And so you're watching either Katya or Maurice just walk up to like the edges of the crater and it's like, no, you're going to get burned up, dude. You're going to get burned up. Yeah, it's really powerful footage. And there's a scene where they show Katya. She's walking kind of along this like actively flowing lava river. And it's not sped up. It's not like the the, the, the speed isn't adjusted at all. But she's kind of walking slowly. And this lava is moving at an incredible speed right next to her on this giant. And it's just like flowing and splashing and she's just walking like yeah no big deal <laughs> god i mean just watching the lava flow it was like you you did reveal your lava fetish yeah. i don't think i thought about licking or eating the lava but <laughs> a real compulsion but yeah. it was something very relaxing just watching it just on the screen and i wonder i mean they're feeling some extreme heat i wonder if they have that same feeling when they're just standing like right there yeah it's probably like sensory overload because you're hearing it and you're seeing it and you're feeling it and smelling it i mean it's it's probably just outrageous to actually experience a lot of the footage of the volcanoes we see are played to some classical music Yeah, I was going to actually ask you to maybe recreate some of that music. Can you can you sing it? You think? Sing it. Really lends it well to the grandiose imagery of uh, these natural structures. It really does. Actually, I got. I mean, I thought it was a perfect marriage of like music and imagery. It was great. I had chills like the whole movie. If this whole movie was two hours of lava flows and volcano eruptions, I think I'd probably be fine with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think you maybe would need Werner Herzog for that. Like how they do the the fireplace logs. I was going to say, yeah. They need to have like lava flows. I think a lot of people listening, because we get new listeners every episode, probably some fellow volcano fetishists, lava fetishists are listening. They hear us say this and they're like, dude, you're right. Someone understands me now. Yeah, yeah. we get you, man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Katya and Maurice, they ended up being overtaken at some point, unfortunately, by a volcano. In 1991 in Japan, they, along with um, about 41 people, were killed in, actually they're saying, a superheated gas explosion as a result of a, an erupting volcano. An avalanche, yeah. Yeah, and they, there's actual footage of it, and it's... 
And it's crazy. And uh, I think they were saying that it was like 800 plus degrees and this gaseous cloud was moving at over 100 miles per hour down Jesus. this mountain. And, and they were ultimately killed by this. Rest in peace, Katya and Maurice. I Absolutely. mean, the, what, they, what they've brought and what we're able to see thanks to them is a big deal mm-hmm. and a big deal to geological science. I, it just occurred to me, this is our first nature documentary. It's nice because I I do love nature documentaries like quite a bit. I could watch Wild Kingdom for hours and I don't have cable anymore, but I used to just put it on like, you know, National Geographic and stuff and let it sit there. But it it feels good to finally get to a nature documentary and I want to get to many more. There is a a part uh, I want to acknowledge there, a brief scene where Katya is hanging out with a chipmunk. The little chipmunk's hanging out and she's feeding him. Yeah, that was an adorable scene. It was adorable. I knew you would like that one too. I was like, oh, Bobby's going to like. Oh, yeah. Like I like chill ass chipmunks. <laughs> chill ass chipmunks, another band name. Clive, I wrote Clyde all in my notes. <laughs> Clive visited Indonesia at 19, got a volcano boner. His volcano boner has not gone down. Indonesia has the most volcanoes of any country on the planet, which makes sense. It's an archipelago. Archipelago. Archipelago? Archipelago. I think, yeah. Yeah, at some point a little later, um, Werner talks about how in Indonesia, like it's just this landscape of all these volcanoes and it has different names, like Night Market of the Ghosts. That's a great name. Right? And Flying Foxes and the Dancing Place of the Spirits. I think that's just so beautiful. I don't like the artsy fartsy. Night Market of the Ghosts? I mean, right? Take it. Take it's your band name. <laughs> yeah. Night Market of the Ghost. That's great. That's so poetic. Artsy fartsy. I know. It's really it's 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 beautiful. And in when he's kind of just saying these different names, it's there's footage of like these sweeping landscapes with like misty volcanoes, like just as far as the eye can see, and just I mean it's just gorgeous. You will not get tired of looking at this movie. Uh, they go to uh, one of the islands in Indonesia. Clive Oppenheimer took us to Mount Sinabung. Which erupted in 2010. And you see remnants of the eruption. Uh, lava flows of half-buried homes. We're, we're getting footage of probably just no more than a few months after this occurred. It's unsettling, to say the least. Berner and the crew and Clive, they visit a volcano monitoring area that has an emergency bunker. That might work if volcanoes flow right over it. It might. hasn't been tested yet. But but, but they good. but they have like a bit of an urban legend of this guy, <laughs> a sole survivor. Was this the 1902 eruption? Yeah, I think so. It's referenced a lot. Apparently, this was a very massive, nearly cataclysmic eruption that occurred in Indonesia. Clive has is such a... a a strong handle on geological history that he'll just start going into being like, oh, that when this erupted, it changed everything. And you're thinking like, whoa, when did this happen? <laughs> It'll be like thousands of years ago. Right. But Clive, it's as, it's as much as if he's watching it happen. He's just so fascinated by it. But there is a, a legend of a sole survivor in the 1902 eruption where this prisoner, he was a bad dude, and they stuck him in an isolated cell. Volcano erupts. The cell that he's in is a lot like uh, a safety bunker where everything is sealed off and he was the only person who walked out of this prison. He did suffer some burns because I think that they were saying there was a small sort of vented window. So some volcanic ash and steam or maybe some something came into the room where he was so he did get burned but then he ended up joining the circus or like a sideshow <laughs> yeah 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 as the last survivor of, a, of an island community <laughs> yeah clive he uh, walks up to a machine and this machine it, it's like it's his own child it practically is it's my baby i'm really glad to see it because he developed this machine and you can find it in indonesia if you want to go <laughs> it measures sulfur dioxide emissions and the tech assists it measures it in the atmosphere because apparently volcanoes can often into the atmosphere release sulfur dioxide before a major eruption occurs this technology helps to give warnings of eruptions and i think it ends up he claims that this technology actually saved thousands of lives because they were able to detect activity happening 
before the actual eruption took place. So they were able to evacuate people. Um, so, and, you know, he's he's saying that most of that is due to this machine, which really doesn't, it's interesting, it doesn't look like much. And he even says so. It looks like a shoebox and a bean can attached to it. Yeah, it looks like a cheap camera pointed to the ground. Apparently. Apparently. You know, it's, it's funny that all throughout this film, we see like monitoring stations and different places where they're monitoring activity and stuff. And they all look very simply put together. Like you would never dream that it would, it was housing the sophisticated technology that it actually is. It's like really detecting very sensitive data and stuff. It's really this sort of like, how, how do people even think of these things? I just don't know. It's my baby. Clive is very proud of it. Yes. He slides his tongue all over it. I'm really glad to see it. <laughs> make sure it's good and clean <laughs> they go to uh, the palace of Jakarta, the palace of the sultan of Jakarta, and uh they note and i'm glad that they show this because this is the kind of thing i want to see the sultan has a mercedes in a big bubble it's exactly how that sounds it's a mercedes sitting in a bubble in like a car park because i guess he's so paranoid about this mercedes getting scratched he literally has a giant bubble around it it's the mercedes in a bubble (laughs) they follow a traditional procession of a ritual to the south sea because what happened and correct me if I get any of this wrong. Yeah, this is a little hard to follow. The Sultan uh, boned uh, this is he bones the sea god or vice versa. Maybe the sea god bones the Sultan. There was a sexual encounter between the Sultan and the goddess of the ocean. So this is kind of a ritual, but also there's a there's a part of they're also reconciling a union or some sort of partnership with the demon in the volcano. So there's like kind of like three pieces from what I could understand. The demon or monster that lives in the volcano. Yeah. It's apparently the offspring of the god of the sea and And the Sultan. Right. So he was yeah, he was the product of, <laughs> of the sexual union between the goddess and the Sultan. Yes. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. One of my favorite parts in the movie is when they point to a pit in the ground and be like, yeah, this is where they have they, they make the sex, <laughs> the Sultan and the God. So this hole is where they will give offerings because this is the site of the sexual union between the goddess of the sea and the first Sultan. I think it's coming right now. What do they do? They they Part of the ritual was bringing a box filled with Body parts of the Sultan, which includes hair and fingernails and various things. Uh-huh. Period. There was one part where they 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 do an ocean rush and they put things out into the ocean. Everyone looked like they were having a lot of fun yeah, at that part. Yeah. But then they settle after the ceremony. There's they have this like display with some flower petals or something. I guess it's by the deity sex hole. I'm not sure. And then after the ceremony was done, everyone starts like grabbing the petals. To keep us souvenirs. Keepsakes. Now, when we get to eventually, we'll get to Korea, to North Korea. Then we're going to see people taking things a little more literally. They have a, a strict memorized script over there in uh, North Korea. And yes, we do go to the Democratic People's Republic. We will get there, yes. Of North Korea. But first, the bird, the, the chicken temple. <laughs> <laughs> the punk chicken. Yes. There's a, yeah, a big chicken, temple. Chicken church. Descri- yes. Describe this building. So we see sitting in the middle of this forest clearing, this large structure. It looks like the kind of the bottom part of it looks like a temple or like a church with like these nice carved windows. But the top of it is a chicken. Well, it's a chicken or like a rooster with like these spiky, what is that called? Like an, on their head. It's got liberty spikes. Yeah, it does. Like in a mohawk right, style. Right. And yeah, and we get to explore it a little bit and we get to talk to um, one of the carpenters that, ha- that has worked on it. Before Werner goes upstairs and meets carpenters, he walks in the building. Inside, we found nobody in an empty chair pretending to watch TV. But he does go upstairs and he talks to the carpenters and he meets the builder, the guy who built this thing. But it's not a chicken. It's a, it's a dove. It's a dove. It unfortunately doesn't look like a dove, but it sounds like the 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 person who he's sort of building this for, like the per, the person we talked to, he he claims he's just he's just a worker. He goes he goes home at the end of the day and spends time with his family, or he said he says something like that. But but that he's basically realizing this vision that someone else has had of this church. And that most people say that it looks like a chicken, but it is supposed to be a dove. It would be very hard to make a dove building. 
It would. Yeah, I mean... Seemed like you would have... It'd have to be white. A little small head in a larger body. Are doves just pigeons? Because they just look like pigeons. Doves, I feel like, are more delicate versions of pigeons. Snob pigeons. They're snobby pigeons. Yeah. Another great band name. Snobby (gasps) pigeons. But this is a Catholic church. And Indonesia is a majority Muslim nation. But there are Catholics too. And they make chicken buildings. They do. And they say something about there being catacombs... Below, but they could also function maybe as a volcano shelter. We go to Lake Toba. Clive tells a story of 74,000 years ago. This is what I'm talking about. And he's so pumped. He loves it. I think he's coming right now. He's so into it. And I don't blame him. I mean, it's it's incredible. There was uh, apparently, because apparently... A, an eruption 74,000 years ago that rained 15,000 cubic kilometers of ash all over this area. And he says this eruption changed the fate of the world. Scientists theorize that it almost put humanity on the brink of extinction. I think he says that they predict about 600 people left after this major eruption. And they can kind of go back and see that a bottleneck in the evolution of humanity sort of happens around this time, like where just things sort of stand still for a bit. And then obviously at some point keep going but this was a major event and maybe they're saying the largest eruption in the history of earth they need to connect more human fossils to this area but it's very hard to find human fossils from precisely around 100,000 years ago the paleolithic era something about that time is very challenging to find human bones but to do that they have to go to the afar region in ethiopia so this afar region they say is the hottest place on earth where temperatures reach in the summertime over 120 degrees jesus which is crazy right and they can really only do work outside in the winter time but it's still very hot it rarely goes below 100 (laughs) rarely i mean i can't i just can't imagine but also it's an area that's experiencing a lot of tribal warfare and you can't go anywhere unless you're accompanied by an armed guard yeah so we see you know, this footage that we see, there's always an armed guard close by. And in the Werner Herzog movies, he's not afraid to let a shot linger. He'll just let the camera sit there for a moment. And he's not afraid to, uh, well, it's not that nothing's happening, but he's just not afraid to kind of let the space exist as it is. We see Clive, he's holding what is an obsidian flake that was uh, created by the volcanic eruptions in the area. It's essentially volcanic glass. And it's very hard, so hard that it's very brittle, but when it breaks, it's sharp in every way. And they say all the way through the 1980s, they would use this obsidian for eye surgeries. You know, I I may have to have eye surgery and I might have to request an obsidian blade. (laughs) Please use an obsidian blade on my eyeball. For religious reasons. For religious, purely religious reasons, yeah. And then we meet a fellow by the name of Tim White. Bingo! From Berkeley. And he leads the an archaeological team and tim white is known for being very exuberant (laughs) very excited here we go that's a nice shaft piece he is a character for sure viva las vegas when um he when we first encountered him he's throwing dirt up in the air explaining about the geological evolution of the area Tim is cutting branches that he's calling the Werner Herzog Highway so that we can get trucks into this certain area to go in for a dig. And and he's with his buddy. His name is Compero Coirento. He's a fossil expert. Like the premier, most sought after fossil expert, according to Tim White. He's the guy that if you held up what looks like a rock and you were like, is this human? He could tell you if it was freaking badger, lion, human. Or what? He could just look at it and tell. And also tell you from which part of the body it has come from. Like, even if it's just a shard of bone, it's pretty incredible that a person could just do this. With our lack of knowledge, we take his word. Yeah, I'm I'm not doubting anything. It was in this area where they found 100,000-year-old hominid fossils. Which, as Bobby was saying earlier, it's very rare to be able to find this sort of thing. So it was kind of perfect timing that they were filming this during this time because this was when they were discovering parts of this hominid. They find what uh, Tim says is an eye bone. (laughs) And it puts it over Clive's face. He's sitting around there digging 
and he's brushing. And of course, everything's cut, so everything's moving quicker through the edit. But it just seems like every time Tim takes an archaeological brush to the dirt, he finds a bone. That's a nice shaft piece. And he's excited every time. Oh. He's dancing. They're all dancing. They're all just really excited to be out there. And poor Clive, he's not. He takes him a while to find anything. He's really trying. Bless his heart. But, yeah. But he eventually does find a little something. Bingo! Yeah. I think they say it's like a, 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 a digital something or another they find the first digital watch (laughs) (laughs) but you know one thing struck me is that like everyone else other than clive they all have all caps on and like um scarves under the cap to like protect their neck from the sun and probably to protect a little bit from dust and he's got nothing on his little head but his mop of hair and i just kept thinking how i hope he's at least wearing sunscreen because he is exposed to all the elements. Tim explains about the process of erosion that separates these skeletons and makes them so brittle over time. And that's why it's so hard, so challenging to find the majority of a skeleton from the Paleolithic era. But he finds a bone that is the biggest that they find so far. That's a nice shaft piece. And Tim gets so excited, and I wrote in my notes, everyone is pumped about Tim's bone. (laughs) <laughs> they make digging uh, all day look so much fun. We're having a great time. I wrote in my notes, uh, never tired of lava footage. It's hypnotic. Looking into the magmite night, the interior of our planet reveals its strange beauty. It absolutely is. It's kind of like, I mean, you know, it's kind of like when you have like a fire in your fireplace or a fire pit, you just can stand there watching it forever. I mean, it's that times a million. And the music choices really work. Yeah, it, it's a it's a beautiful combination for sure. We move on to the Westman Islands in Iceland to the town of Hemay, H E I M A Y. Hemay. Hemay. Which this town experienced an eruption without warning that decimated this town. There were no fatalities, thankfully. They managed to evacuate in time. Fishing fleet, I guess, arrived just in time just to get everybody out of there, which is incredible. And it's an, a town in Iceland that isn't Reykjavik, so they were able to get everyone out. Mm-hmm. They got all 100 people out of there, I guess. But houses were buried. And Iceland has eruptions every season on one of their islands. And one eruption sent plumes of smoke into the air so much that it blinded air traffic for weeks. So. I remember that happening yeah Yeah, that was a big deal and then it caused massive amounts of flooding and we see some footage of that we see footage of the flooding which is incredible and devastating we also see this enormous ash cloud and like lightning's happening in it and it just looks like the scariest thing you've ever seen yeah you see i guess that's heat lightning i suppose something yeah it looks like something from hell it's literally hell yeah the eye of sauron or something There, there's one something that happened in June eighth, seventeen eighty three. What happened was an entire landmass erupted. Apparently, this whole landmass was like volcano underneath, and it wasn't just one erupted fissure like a like what we think of a volcano, like a cone, and then it's spurting up the top. It's like ground broke open, and there were several fissures and eruptions just shooting in the air, and the entire landmass is just to this day just buried under molten rock. Yeah, I think I think at some point they said there were 140 vents opened, which a vent is I guess is a is a fissure in the earth that it eventually forms a cone which forms the volcano on top of it. Um and then so all that's happening and then like 3 miles away like 30 more pop up and then it just it's just like everything's exploding all over the place. But imagine that the people at the time who saw that must have thought the world was ending. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it probably almost it probably almost did for those people that were watching it. But now we move on to the most glorious of land, Mount Pictou, which is in North Korea. And it's on the north border with China. And this volcano has been active. It's fairly young for a volcano, for what a scientist assume. And it's only been active about 5,000 years. Is that what they said? Something like that? But by legend, this is 
the birthplace of Korea. And that legend has been co-opted, of course, by the the government. Now it's ran by Kim Jong-un. I think during filming, Kim Jong-il was the leader. So we get mentions of Kim Jong-il and what is his dad's name? Kim Il-sung. We see some shots of students. They're dressed like soldiers. They come up to the edge of the volcanic crater. They're actually singing a song that we see a little bit later on in this in this footage. Um, that it's like a countrywide song. It's called Let's Go to Mount Pictou. <laughs> So we see it, like I said, we see it now, these students kind of singing it off off the cliff. And then we see a little bit later in this footage as well. But it's like the national song for the volcano. Now, Werner cannot help but notice how strangely manufactured and cold everything is. They're in cooperation. Really interesting, because this is in conjunction with the University of Cambridge. Is They're in North Korea to work with volcanologists in North Korea. So this is a scientific co-opting that does not happen very often. Yeah, it's like a very unique and rare opportunity for something like this to happen. So because of this partnership, they're allowed to film their movie in conjunction with all with this research and partnership that's happening. I'm very fascinated by North Korea. And North Korea over the years has allowed more and more cameras in, but it's all like in this rigged environment. We see them in a train station. And at first I saw that and I was like, well, North Korea's got a train and Asheville can't get a train. But then I was like, oh, this thing probably isn't even running half the time. And it's just going now. And no one's talking. Everyone's walking through a subway station. There's no sound. You hear nothing. They display the newspapers and people walk up and read them because can't afford to distribute them all out. Well, and Werner straight up says it's propaganda. Like, yeah. That's the only thing that people are seeing. He, he actually says, Everything we saw was an act of presentation and we went for it. There is no other way to see this enigmatic country other than how it wants to present itself. And all the emotions that are shown on camera are given in devotion to the great leader Mm -hmm. of North Korea. Clive respects the reverence specifically towards the mouth. North Korean scientists have a, a very simple little room to study their data, but Clive points out, as simple as this looks, it's actually a very thoroughly mapped data center and that they actually have a lot of information. I was saying earlier where like you see these structures that house this um, ends up being very sophisticated equipment and technology, but it just looks like a little shack or a hut in the middle of nowhere. Very unassuming. It's housing some really important stuff. We meet a Dr. Yoon Young-Goon. He's a scientist, a volcanologist, and he speaks. Every time he's referencing the volcano, it all has to tie it into the glory of the DPRK. Werner explains how Kim Il-sung, after the revolution, appropriated this volcano myth. They go on a monument statue tour. North Korea, they love their statues. There's one point where one of the tour guides was like, and uh, Kim Jong-il, he he loved these trees. Wow, he liked the trees. (laughs) He was partial to these trees. I felt bad for both scientists involved in a way, because even though they're in this unprecedented cohesion of science, because Dr. Yoon Young-Goon is on camera, everything he says has to prop up the dictatorship. Yeah, absolutely. And and he's he's also speaking through an interpreter. Did you happen to, to notice? We thought this was very interesting. His title was like Director of Simultaneous Interpretation <laughs> of North Korea, I guess. I, did, I didn't catch that yeah, it was, specifically. It was, it was really interesting. But, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, he's not only is he having to really censor what he says, he's also speaking through someone else to the camera. So Everything they're saying is very highly restricted. Yeah. yeah. And I could imagine it's frustrating on both sides because the uh, Clive and the crew and the Cambridge scientists, they want to discuss the science of volcanoes and the history of the volcanic activity. And I'm sure Dr. Yoon Young-Goon would love to just do the same thing because he is a scientist. He's a volcanologist. He and his family are not in labor camps, so he's managed to navigate uh, this job just perfectly. And I'm sure both sides would love nothing more to just talk about volcanoes. Yeah. But everything's got to be about... And maybe 
they do. They're off camera. They get to really get into it and like really have a have a deep discussion. But yeah, we don't we don't know. Gosh, I would love to see those off camera moments. <laughs> the totalitarianism and the fear is almost impressive how it's gripped this entire nation. A lot of people have theorized that the people of North Korea want to be invaded. Like they'd gladly mm. take the horrors of war if it means getting out of this. It seems like quite a thing to say. More and more I learn about North Korea. Anything's got to be better than that. And this walking prison. And everyone we see in these shots surely have people that they have known, friends or distant relatives that have just been put into labor camps or violently executed. They will strap people. They're very proud of their anti-aircraft guns. Their best defense is these anti-aircraft guns. And they're so proud of them that they will have public executions where people are strapped to the anti-aircraft gun and they will just talk about overkill. I think there was a high-ranking general, like a relative, when Kim Jong-un took power, he executed this relative using an anti-aircraft gun. Yikes. We don't see any of that in this film. No, no. That's just (laughs) a little extra. Yeah, a little extra, extra, extra. You see the Kim Il-sung cabin. The secret log cabin, which, you know, millions of people visit, and, and, and they were saying it's like visiting the birthplace of Jesus to people in North Korea. Traditionally, communism does not allow for religion, but this is religious fervor here, like a forced religion. I just couldn't imagine. I'm very fascinated and very frightened for those people at the same time. Yeah, I'm fascinated too, you know, and I have to admit that before this, you know, maybe purposefully, I didn't really know much about North Korea. I mean, you know, you everyone kind of knows like the overall sort of the restrictions they're all living under and, and all of that. But I mean, this really, it was very interesting to me. It really kind of opened my eyes. But yeah, we just don't, we, we'd see more, a lot more about the, the people and the culture in this section, which I thought was really interesting. We do see some really incredible footage of this sort of like performance happens it's like um like a like maybe like a yearly an annual celebration at the largest stadium where it's basically moving art like a moving almost like a like a painting but it's made completely with like they call human pixels mm-hmm. sort of like you see at a stadium like a, like a sports event where people are holding up you know colored cards and like they spell yeah. out different things but this is like a whole gorgeous scene yeah. this is their biggest event over a hundred thousand people are involved i can't remember off the top of my head what it's called there's a name for it when china had the olympics their opening ceremony there was a lot of unified drumming and like a lot of the colors coming together it was almost like that but even on a bigger scale it really looks like this country's puts a lot of resources into making sure this show goes as perfectly as they want it to one of the first scenes we see that they that they depict with their human pixels is this secret log cabin, this Kim Il Sung secret log cabin that we talked about a little bit earlier. That's kind of like their the pride of the celebration. Is this is this scene? Bernard talks about how he wants to ask questions in a personal manner, but he's a little disappointed because he knows the responses will not have that equal emotional weight that he would give. But there's a little girl and she plays piano. Oh, yeah. And this is before we leave North Korea. And the teacher is like forcing her to bow and like telling her lessons. That in and of itself is not necessarily signifying the the brutality of a nation. It could just be like, a, you know, all the kids need to learn their lessons. Yeah, it's a good example of the rigidness that, that I imagine exists. Yes, the natural impulsiveness of a child. Even a child who's been made to play piano very well, still a child and has to have that rigidness pushed down upon her. And we also see some kids performing, like, you know, kind of school performances, and they're singing that song that we saw the students in the beginning. Let us um, go to Mount Pektu. Let's go to Mount Pektu. And- all singing it and doing little performances and stuff and they're adorable mm-hmm. you have to admit they were very very cute yes but we're gonna go back to tana island mount yasser standing to the edge of the volcano and we find out about a religion that correlates with this island ginger this is my new religion yeah you told me and i and i, and I believe it it's the john from it's considered a cult on this island there is a chief here we met the chief earlier but there is a side religion, and they do call it a cult, but it's the John Frum religion. I did a 
some little surface research about it, and it's considered a cargo cult. Which is, at some point, maybe it's not anymore, but at some point it was, that's kind of considered a derogatory term. But I think we just use it as, you know, a general reference for this type of of cult that you're going to tell us about. And John Frum, he's also been called John Brum, or variations of the spelling of Frum. I thought I misspelled it at first, but it looks like my initial misspelling of Frum, spelled it F-R-O-M-M-E, could just very well be as valid as, as any but it's spelled F-R-U-M. And based upon what they claim in the movie, an American Marine came from the sky and apparently said that someday there will be a mass shipment of goods come to the island. He's not God. He's more like Jesus. And he is a Christ-like figure. There's some debate as to when it happened because I assume this society, more like a folkloric society, that's how stories are passed along. That's how... The culture is spread around. So there's some debate on when. Some say it was the 1910s. Some say it was like the 30s. But it was around the 30s is when people really started to hear about it. But from as near as what I can tell, some dude, an American named John Frum, ended up on this island and I guess was like, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll bring you a ship full of goods. And the people responded with, you're our Jesus now. It it seems so bizarre to me. It's almost something like out of a movie, like and almost is, like this is not the only cult that's there are there are a few similar like this. And and I, what I was reading very briefly, they all seem to center around a natural occurrence or a natural something natural like a volcano. There is a guitar fellowship. Just reminded me of like a, like a church fellowship, but it's all about John from thanking John from. We meet a chief Isaac, and um, he's the chief of this, I guess, cargo cult. This is the first time I've heard that term, and I'm kind of really interested in small religious movements like this. So I am. This is my initial foray into this specifically, yeah. and I'm very excited to go forth from here to learn as much about these so-called cargo cults as I, as I possibly can. Maybe Johnny knows some about cargo. Our mo- now, Johnny and I, we often do like spiritual angle religious movies. Our movies have kind of ended up having bizarre religious angles. Right, yeah. In Iron Maiden Flight 666, there's a maiden religion. Sure is. We meet a priest. I believe it was in Brazil. And now we're, now we're hearing about... This fascinating religion where people are worshiping a man named John from some Marine from maybe about a hundred years ago who was like, uh, yeah, we'll bring a bunch of goods. Yeah, I'll bring back some gum and some refrigerators for you. Why not? Someday. I'm may- going to tell you when, but it'll happen. Can't we all get together, arrange a ship, get a cruise ship down there, fill it full of stuff, old Zunes, uh, t-shirts of Super Bowl champions from 20 years ago, maybe some... Um, Mills ready to eat, like those military meals. Just a bunch of random stuff. Stick a ship out there. Send it out there. And be like, look. And there's some debate over who sometimes John Frum is uh, depicted as a white man. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's depicted as a black man. Is There's no real consensus on it. It just seems like it, you could take a ship there and be like, uh, John Frum sent me. Here's or a bunch of say, old Zunes. Hey, I'm John Frum. Yeah, you could. Here's here's my stuff for you. It's so awkward because it seems like this is some story that a white American would write. Be like, oh, I'm going to tell the story of this little backwards island. And they worship a Marine who has to land on this island. It just doesn't seem real, but it is. Yeah, and you know, Clive is very respectfully interviewing Chief Isaac and because I mean, it is fascinating, I mean, you don't want to take away from from these people's beliefs and this belief system that they had and they've had for you know generations. I'm guessing it's interesting. He asks him, you know, details about where does John from live? What happens when people die? Do they get to meet John from? Is that can you know kind of asking if that's maybe considered heaven in so many words? I don't know if he actually outright says it, but I think he's kind of trying to just get more information about like how John from really 
functions. Yeah. And as as a religious figure. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think at some point they say that he also he travels from from America to Tana back and forth through a portal. That is through the volcano. Through the volcano. And the volcano is the portal. But it's also where he lives. Like he lives in a room in the volcano. And the word room they reference rooms a lot. Like when you're buried, they put you in the ground. But they call it a room. Yeah. And it's like a waiting area to go to the next level. Yeah. And John from sort of like a way to get to God. So he's actually not God. He's more, like Bobby said, a Jesus sort of figure, which is a means to get to God. Yeah. But the volcano plays a very specific role. Uh, we, we meet Molly. He's the son of Isaac. And he talks about how he slept by the volcano one night and spoke to John Frum. And God and John Frum allow him to step up to the volcano. Clive asks if if he told anyone what, what John Frum said. And he said that he, he couldn't tell. It was a message just, just for him. And Clive's like, can you just whisper it into my ear? I like volcanoes <laughs> too. And the guy just looks away like, oh, God. <laughs> I love how jovial they are. <laughs> they do respect these people, but they're not so reverential that they won't at least attempt to make a joke to them. Right. And they're not stiff. They they respect them, but they're not stiff about it. Right, right. I think they're trying to establish like a familiarity or some sort of like a connection. And we see with, with Chief Moses from before, like they're, like there's kind of like, a more relaxed sort of interaction, but with Chief Isaac and his son, there seems to be a little more standoffishness. I feel like I could kind of like detect that where, Cl- where Clive was trying to joke and sort of like bring him out a little bit. Mm. I feel like they were just kind of not comfortable with that. <laughs> They're probably used to foreigners like being all like, tell us about this John from dude. Maybe so. You know, it's interesting because we also see kind of at the end of the scene, we see like a kind of a close-up shot of them in their village with their family and stuff. And then I, I guess it's a drone. Pulls away, away, yeah. away, away. Beautiful just, shot. It's a gorgeous shot. And you sort of see the whole village in its entirety. Before it pulls away, you see the expressions on the villagers, the, their faces. And they're just kind of very skeptical and just kind of like, what is happening? So I, I wonder how often they do get visitors. Hmm. there and how often they do have to kind of explain themselves i would be really interested to know if they get people visiting and wondering about this john from religion yeah i mean i'm sure as hell i kind of want to go there and ask a bunch of questions but uh Werner goes into a monologue we'd see of course more beautiful volcano shots this boiling mass is just monumentally indifferent to scurrying roaches retarded reptiles and vapid humans alike And we end the film on the chief. He says, I hear that there are volcanoes all over the world. And one day they will all erupt. I think everything will, will melt. That's what I'm thinking. Everything will melt. The stone, the soil, trees and everything will melt. That's when the cosmic infant will come down and take the sweet lava nectar from the teeth and then go probably create a new universe somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That part was actually gave me gave me chills, too, because he was like, you know, someone told me that there are volcanoes in other places, too, which maybe when he heard that, he was very surprised to hear that. Maybe he was like, maybe he was thinking this is just special to our area, you know? Yeah. And so he I could see how he would imagine how they could just easily just take over the whole world. And he also talks about he saw he unexpectedly saw an eruption in, in lava, maybe for the first time, because um, he seemed surprised when he was talking about it, but how he saw the lava sort of like meeting the water, meeting the ocean. And he thought it thought he thought it was like the water was red, it was on fire, but it was really the lava meeting the water. And it was really confusing and scary to him. Volcanoes, man. <laughs> They're wild. They are super wild. Now, Ginger, we don't rate things in a star rating scale. That's not the that's not the great fire we're looking for. We want a volcanic rating scale, a Hertzog rating scale. I'm going to give this movie one through five Hertzogs. And then we will 
combine them as the lava meets the sea mm-hmm. for best out of 10 hurt socks. I don't know what much more I could say about it that we didn't really discuss. It's a beautiful film. I learned a lot. I love the way everything was culturally entwined. Just like there was a web of tragedy and Into the Abyss, there's a web of culture that connects humanity throughout thousands of years to these geological formations that are even older than humans themselves. And there's a modern connection to the way people believe around these volcanoes and the the way that they project their belief. All the natural wonder we saw in this movie, I felt like I could have gotten three more hours of it. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, sounds like I'm going to give it five. (laughs) I think as we go deep into Herzog month here, I I find myself, it's just going to be a thing where maybe I'm just comparing to other Herzog movies, not so much. Because, you know, like a 30 for 30 movie is very different than a Herzog movie. And I have to hold that into account when I'm rating it. Like a a 3.5 30 for 30 might be different than uh, um, a nature 3.5. But this was very educational and maybe one of the most beautiful to look at documentaries we've done so far. We know Vernon's got some skills. We know he's got something to say and we like the way he says it. I'm going to give this a 4.5 out of 5 Hurt Socks. Nice. Volcanic even. (laughs) I agree. I mean, it is just a gorgeous film and like the... The, the music, and I tried to actually find a little bit about, you can find a soundtrack playlist on Spotify, apparently. But I don't know how, how well that would, I mean, I'm sure it's gorgeous on its own, but I really feel like it needs to sort of exist with this footage that we're seeing in the film. And it, it's just really breathtaking. And especially if you have a um, lava fetish, like I apparently do. And it was just, you know, there's a lot of heart in this film. And I feel like they really... He and Werner and Clive really showed us some really unique aspects of these different cultures and how they related to the volcano. And even just the footage itself was just breathtaking and fascinating. So I think, because I just really enjoyed this so much, I thought it was so well done. I'm going to give it a 4.75. Cool. Yeah. And all that beauty. And on top of that, we get John Frum. We get John Frum. I mean, what a gift. It's just an added bonus. Yeah. You didn't even need to throw John Frum in there. To maybe get me give it a 4.5. But then you throw in this small religion about a marine that promised a bunch of indigenous islanders cargo goods. I'm fascinated for life. I'm going to remember John Frum forever. I yeah. want to know more. I know. I do John too. Frum. So many parts of this that kind of left me going, wow, I really want to learn more about this. And I think that other people watching will also feel the same way. They'll be kind of like compelled to maybe do a little research about some of this stuff. I take my 4.5 Herzogs. You take your 4.75 Herzogs. God damn, that gets very close to perfect. Not quite. That is a total of, yes, <laughs> 9.25 Herzogs. When we initially started doing the podcast and the initial concept, it was almost like a joke. We have this system and it's kind of meant to be fun. You know, you don't have to necessarily uh, be serious about it or anything. And it almost seems kind of absurd to give a Herzog rating to a Herzog movie. I don't think so. I think it's very fitting. <laughs> I like it. It's it's just meant to be silly is all I'm yeah. saying. And we can all have fun with it. I think he would appreciate it. But a 9.25, that's a high recommend. Yeah. And folks, you put in Werner Herzog into your Netflix queue. This is on Netflix. There's at least six Werner Herzog documentaries and a few more that he produced as well. So you got uh, Into the Abyss, Lo and Behold, and Into the Inferno, those three we're doing in Herzog Month. You can find all those on Netflix. Also, go on iTunes slash Apple Podcast. Give us five stars and a little review. That helps people find us and get to know us. I'm trying to remember to do these at the end of the episodes because I think it probably means more to like go out on it. And we really appreciate it. You can connect with us on social networks. We have a Facebook fan page, Instagram, Twitter, I really suck at Twitter. That <laughs> that Twitter is dead. I'm thinking about just going like full absurd with it um, or just deleting it. I don't know. I, I, I want the social networks to kind of die off. Instagram may be owned by Facebook, but I do kind of have fun with Instagram. So if you want to get previews of what's coming, you can follow Documenteers on Instagram and hit us up on Twitter too, whatever you want to do. But it's more important that you give us a five-star review in iTunes. And when you do that, that is... It's such a big deal. And to all those that have done that, 
so far. There's a website. I keep forgetting the name of it where you can read the reviews that don't appear to show up on iTunes. I, I am seeing the reviews that come up. They just, for some reason, aren't showing up where they should. I'm very confused by the whole thing, but I'm not confused about my love of documentaries and about my love of the listeners of the documenteers. More every day. That's that. And that's this film, Into the Inferno, by Werner Herzog. We all know about Ginger's lava fetish now. <laughs> Ginger, I know you love volcanoes. I do. I had a lot of fun talking about this. This was great. I, I, I'm so excited. I wish you could, can you like splice in a Ric Flair woo? Woo! 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 Stay sweet. Keep on doc. My name is Ginger Tee-hee-hee-hee. Miso soup, watermelon. That's my baby. The retarded reptiles. Here you go to bat for Kmart. Like, I mean... Leave Kmart alone. <laughs> leave Kmart alone. Here we go. That's a nice shaft piece. Volcano burst in my pants. <laughs>